Our sermon today is taken from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. This is the word of God. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. He touched my mouth and said, Behold, this had touched your lips, your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. Thus says the Lord. Let us pray for the preaching of God's word. Father in heaven, who are we, O Lord, that you are mindful of us? Who are we that you care for us, that you address us, that you speak to us, Lord, but you do in your word? More than that, you have come to our fallen world in the form of your Son in order to show us your character. Father in heaven, as we approach your throne today and seek your wisdom, I pray that you can send the Holy Spirit to make us aware of your glory, that we may be in awe of it and we may come to worship you eagerly. So that, Lord, uh, we do not take for granted who you are and what you've done for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I think something that I had a really hard time readjusting to after living in the West for a while is that people in our culture, a collectivist, honor, shame, Eastern culture, has really high what Hofstadter calls power distance, right? That in, intuitively, we need, we have this awareness that we need to give the appropriate respect to the person to whom we're relating. This applies especially to our elders and superiors. So like in the West, it'll be perfectly normal for me to speak to someone my dad's age on a first name basis or to call my boss or something without saying Mr. or something, just their first name. Not here though, we can never be casual and ever address our elders or superiors by name, always by their title. Fun fact, I didn't know the name of my paternal grandfather until I was a teenager. I just knew him as grandpa because his name is held in such high respect. Right? So we never call older people by their first names, always Ibu or Bapa. If they're um, only slightly older and in a context less formal, we need to address them as ka 
ko, abang, chi, right? And there are many more of these subtle things that we do, depending on how thick the power difference is uh, in that culture, that makes this more noticeable. So, for example, during meals, you know, there are rules about uh, where we have to sit, who gets to eat first, where the elders get to sit, and you know, what to do if the glass of the boss or the elder is empty, right? It's like there is this unspoken protocol that we need to follow in order to not step on any toes. It's a lot of pressure for me, at least, to be honest. Because the idea in our culture is that like, respect to someone means honoring the life experience they have or merits that has put them in this position of authority. And in order to show that respect, we need to adjust our behavior appropriately. And if we don't, we risk being impolite and offending them like, or being seen as arrogant. So we intuitively know, at least in this culture, right, that people who are in positions of authority needs to be respected and acknowledged in appropriate ways. And this week, we'll be continuing on our series on holiness. And today, we'll be studying Isaiah 6, 1 to 8. The prophet Isaiah's account of his experience meeting the one who deserves the most respect and reverence possible. Face to face with the living God. With the very creator of heaven and earth. The King of kings and the Lord of lords. From our text, we can learn that there are at least three things that we need to do, as Isaiah did, in order to give God the honor that he is due. Our three points. A true encounter with the holiness of God means that we will, one, honor as authority, two, repent of our sins, and three, answer as call. Let me repeat that. A true encounter with the holiness of God means that we will, one, honor as authority, Two, repent of our sins. And three, answer is call. Let's get into it. Point one. So let's set the scene here, right? And engage our imagination in order to visualize along with Isaiah what he's seeing. The first thing that our passage tells us is that Isaiah received this vision in the year that King Uzziah died. Now, we know from uh, the book of Second Chronicles 26, that this was a time of political instability in Israel. We didn't know if King Uzziah actually died at the time of uh, this prophetic vision. But we know from the story that right before King Uzziah died, he had leprosy, right? Because if you've read the story of the kings of Israel in the book of Chronicles, something that you'd immediately notice is that most of them weren't very good. Most of them strayed from the laws of God and fell into some sort of idolatry and heinous sin and dragged the entire nation into sin. Now, Uzziah wasn't that bad relative to most of them. Actually, he started off pretty promisingly, fearing God, doing what was right and what in his eyes, and the Lord made him prosper. Right? He rebuilt a war torn Jerusalem. He won a bunch of battles, gained some territory, but his success made him arrogant. He fell into sin and disobedience, and then God struck him with leprosy until the day he died. Right? So here was a nation that Isaiah was uh, a part of, whose king was either dead or basically out of action because he's sick, and a people 
who, because of this, is likely anxious and afraid because they have no leader. They had no idea what their future is going to be. And what did God do? He showed Isaiah the one who's actually in charge. Notice that he saw, it says, the Lord. If you look at the English Bible, the word Lord there is spelled with a capital L and the O-R-D is in lowercase. Okay, and so whenever we see this, it means that the Hebrew word there is Adonai. And Adonai is simply means the Hebrew word or title for Lord, the one who is sovereign. You know what I mean? Like it's like calling someone doctor or reverend. And what was the Lord doing, the sovereign, the king? He is sitting on his throne, lifted on high. So what the Lord is showing Isaiah here is that God wants him to know, God wants his people to know that although their earthly king is gone, their, the king of kings still reigns. And this is reinforced by the image that the train or the edges of God's robe has filled the temple. And the temple were, was where at the time the very presence of God dwelt in a special way. It was in a very real way God's house. So the fact that God's throne is not on the royal palace, but the temple seeks to communicate that it was actually there, the center of authority has always been. The one who was in charge and is and always will be in charge was the one who lives in the temple and not the palace. And this is supposed to be sobering for Israel. Because you see, the fate of the nation back then depended highly on their king more so than even the heads of states today. So in this period of disarray and uncertainty, God wants to leave no doubt in Israel's mind that nothing had actually changed. God is who was and had been and always will be in charge. So what kind of king then sits upon the throne of heaven? Verse 2 and 3 illustrates. So Isaiah sees these creatures flying around in God's throne. He calls them the seraphim. And these seem to be a class of angels. The Catholics believe that they were angels of the highest order, the ones who were closest to God. Calvin believed that their wings covered their faces to show us that even they cannot endure the fullness of the glory of God without being destroyed, while their feet were covered to show us that they are not tied to the earth like we are. So the very presence of these angels and their appearance was made to show us that the one sitting on the throne is more powerful, splendid, and glorious than anything you can think of. No mere creature can look upon his face, not even the angels and the heavenly beings. Because what, what the seraphim was crying out in verse 3 is communicating exactly that. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Now, the Hebrew word for holy is kadosh, right? It's actually where we get the Indonesian word kudus. And when we hear this word holy, we usually think of some ethical or moral purity, right? Like being free from sin, right? That's why when someone brags about their moral standards and their religiousness, you say that they are holier than thou. And while moral purity is certainly part of it, what holiness in its essence, in its uh, root actually means is to be 
set apart. It is closer to what we think as being special, one of a kind, in a class of its own. So when we say that God is holy, we're not talking about an aspect or an attribute of God as such, like His mercy or His justice or His love. But what we're talking about here is the essence of the nature of God it's Himself. Right? The word that describes the essential difference between God and creature. That God is holy and we are common. Right? That's the opposite of holy. And now, He, therefore, because He is holy, is totally set apart and infinitely higher than anything else in creation. To the point where this holiness is unapproachable. That's why the seraphim had to declare that He's not just holy or holy, holy, but holy, holy, holy. This is a Hebrew way of triple repetition of emphasizing something to the maximum degree. You see, and who is being said as holy, holy, holy? It is the Lord. And we can see, if you look at your English Bibles, that the Lord there is spelled in all caps, meaning that who's being talked about here is Yahweh, right? The name of God, the Tetragrammaton, indicating God's self-dependent and self-sufficient nature. He is the self-existing one whose existence depends on no one else by himself. And when it says of hosts, right, he's talking about the armies of heaven over whom he has authority, talking about his power and his grandeur as such. Yeah, Isaiah is trying to paint picture of our King in its maximum glory and power. Now, I doubt that any of us will be taken up into the heavenlies to see heaven throne as Isaiah has. But this doesn't mean that it's impossible for us to get to a point where we also come to a realization of God's holiness. Because the seraphim themselves says that the whole earth testifies to His glory. Because glory is nothing but a manifestation or revelation of the magnificence or excellence of something. And so the whole earth, every inch of creation, testifies to God's eternal power. The universe is God's handiwork. But as Romans 1 says, why we can't see this, why we can't see this fact that's actually present in creation is because our sin suppresses it, even though it's possible for us to see. Okay, and so Isaiah's point is this, that encountering the holiness of God means that we realize that there is no one like our God who is in charge of heaven and earth, the creator of the universe. That God is not like just basically like a human with human characteristics, but with superpowers, as the polytheists believe. But God is far greater and more glorious beyond anything that we can ever begin to imagine. He is perfection Himself, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-glorious. His ways are above our ways. His thoughts are above our thoughts. Right? He is Creator. We are only creatures. So He deserves all our praise, all our loyalty, all our obedience, because everything, all of creation is His and exists for His glory. So in our theology, in every prayer, in every song, in every word and thought that we have about God, what 
we must do is we must start from God's holiness or what theologians call God's transcendence, right? To approach God appropriately is to appreciate that He is utterly unique and supreme, sui generis, right? That we know what we know about God and what we can even reflect upon Him is but a drop in the ocean of who He is. And that we are so unworthy and we have no business at no right to even be looking at the direction of this God, let alone speak to Him or be in His presence. As the psalmist says, Who is man, O Lord, that you are mindful of Him? And at the same time, God is under no obligation to us, not to answer us, not to help us, not to love us. Rather, He is the one in charge, and actually we are the ones obligated to Him. Yet, we have failed miserably over and over again, right? And knowing that we have is actually a pretty traumatizing thought and pretty scary, which is point two. To really honor the glory of God, we must repent of our sins. So as Isaiah was seeing this, the king of kings on his throne, as verse 4 says, it says the whole room trembled and filled with smoke. Right? If you've been reading your Bible, uh, this is something that's happened before in the book of Exodus when God wants to display his power in the shaking and smoke deal. And what does Isaiah do when he witnessed this? He says in verse 5, Woe is me, I am lost. Woe, W-O-E, not W-H-O-A. Is one of those words that nobody ever really says anymore. But what this is, is a pronouncement of curses. Right? It's like a combination of a conviction of a crime and the sentencing of a punishment. Isaiah is condemning himself. And now, the prophets would usually pronounce woes or curses on somebody else because of their sins or transgressions against God. But when Isaiah was confronted, when he was face to face with God's holiness, he pronounces the curse upon himself. And he says, I am lost. Or the KJV puts it better, I think. I am undone. Isaiah here is falling apart before God. See, what Isaiah is experiencing here is this more intensified version of that sinking feeling when we've been caught doing something wrong when we realize we've made a huge mistake and we can't fix it and there will be consequences. This overwhelming feeling of despair and hopelessness because we realize that we are guilty before the judge and it's over for us. And this is a good fear, friends. Because such realization and regret of the depravity of our sin is the first step towards repentance, which is what Isaiah is exactly doing here. For unless it dawns on us, how bad it is, our sin is, and how much trouble we are in because of our sin, it's going to be really hard for us to genuinely renounce it and stop doing it. Now notice why Isaiah thinks he needs to repent here. He says, because he is a man of unclean lips from a people of unclean lips. Interesting, isn't it? What he considers unclean is his lips. Remember, Isaiah was a prophet. His lips are the very instruments of his ministry. 
what would be the best, the holiest part of his body. Yet it is this very thing that this, he feels disqualifies him before the God. Not even the very best things we can offer can make us worthy before the Lord. And not only is Isaiah personally unworthy, but he includes himself in a number of common people who are also polluted by this sin. So he's saying his ministry, his righteousness, his religiousness, his Bible knowledge, his ethnic heritage, anything else does not make him any better in the eyes of God. Isaiah realizes that in the face of such majesty, in the face of such holiness, in the face of the perfection of what is good, even the best of us is a guilty sinner, just like everyone else, closer to the worst of us than to the Lord. You see, Isaiah here freaks out because God's, because God's presence, he knows, is completely incompatible with any kind of sin. Because God is perfectly good, evil simply cannot survive in his proximity. God's holy presence is like the sun, right? It can provide life, heat, energy that is essential to life, so it's good. But because the sun is such a powerful force, the closer you get to it and the less protected you are to it, the more dangerous it becomes. Like how if it's really sunny out and you don't wear sunscreen, you could get burned. Right? Imagine if you went on a rocket and flew into the sun, you would be destroyed. Likewise, God is so powerfully good and perfect that he becomes dangerous to anything impure and imperfect that gets too close. Anything unclean must be purged by the overwhelming holiness of God. Now, this sounds pretty scary, doesn't it? Because we all realize that if there is a perfection of what is good, and this absolute moral um, transcendent standard exists, we all fall short. Everyone knows that nobody is perfect. Right? Even if we think we get to make up our own standards, the vast majority of us will agree that we fall short of it at least sometimes. There is even a medical term for people who don't agree they have flaws and go around telling people that they are perfect. Right? Narcissistic personality disorder. Hence, the thought that God is perfectly holy, therefore demands perfection, therefore we can never be holy, makes us very anxious. Right? It makes us scared. It makes us fearful of God. Therefore, the tendency of our sinful hearts is to somehow figure out ways to handle this angst so that we don't constantly feel like a failure or live in the fear of judgment of hell. And there are two common ways that people have tried commonly to deal with this. Right? The first way is that we try to domesticate God. We make up a God or choose an idea of God that is comfortable, convenient for us, and fits with how we want to live. We look for some kind of God that accepts our sinful behavior, and tolerates it, or focus on an attribute of God. Perhaps that the God is always capable of forgiveness and behavior, and then um, hone in on that. So instead of worshiping a God who is holy, 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 you would rather worship a God who is love, 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 or mercy, mercy, mercy. Instead of worshiping the King of Kings, we want to worship Jesus, my homie, 
right? And on top of the fact, because, uh, because we are creatures, we absolutely have no right nor capacity to determine what God should be like. What happens when we, when we domesticate God is that our hearts will only harden. We will grow more and more callous towards our sin and we will feel justified doing it. And the fact that God will always forgive us for our sins makes us think that we can get away with it. That it's no big deal because God can forgive it so easily. Taking for granted the grace of God and only piling up reasons for God's wrath to be unleashed upon us. The other way that we could deal with this angst is by hiding from God. Either by just straight up tuning him out and running as far away from him as possible and taking out anything that can remind us of the presence of this holy God. Maybe even convincing ourselves that he's not actually there or he doesn't actually care and we're fine without him. Or, more insidiously, by trying to make up for our sins by doing good deeds. If at some, as if at some point we can call it even with God if we do enough good deeds and try to limit the bad ones we have, right? This form of self-salvation. And the problem with this, of course, is the fact that no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Hebrews 4.12 We cannot cover up the blemishes of our sins, no, many, no matter how many good deeds we use as makeup to cosmetically cover it up. For God discerns the very thoughts and intentions of our hearts. And in fact, apart from Him, all our good deeds, all our righteous deeds are like polluted garments. Anyway, as Isaiah himself uh, later says in chapter 64, Brothers and sisters, whatever way we come up with to get around this feeling of inadequacy and light of the holiness of God won't work because the whole earth is filled with His glory. There is no escape and at best we can be ignorant of it in this life. But there will come a day when we also will be before the throne of God and on that day we will have to give an account of our lives. So if we are right now trembling in fear because we feel like we will never be good enough, good. Because that means you're on the right track. Because this, friends, was exactly how Isaiah felt. But thanks be to God. Because God does not just release His holiness to consume us, nor does He just leave us to wallow in our misery. But as God did with Isaiah, He takes care of our guilt for us, which is point three. To really appreciate, honor the holiness of God, we need to be ready to answer His call. Look at what God does for Isaiah in verse 6. As Isaiah was in this repentant state for his sin, God sent a seraphim and then cauterized the sinful part of his body with the coal from the altar. And back then, you know, before the days of modern medicine, there was no betadine or Hansa Plus to prevent a wound from getting infected and potentially killing you. So if it's a pretty bad wound, right, if you get stabbed or something, 
what people would do was take a very hot object, like a hot piece of iron, to sear the wound in order to kill all the bacteria and bad stuff so that the wound could heal properly. This is what God did to Isaiah's unclean lips with the coal. God wasn't trying to punish him or torture him, but God was healing him. And notice where the coal was taken from. The text specifies that it's taken from the altar where the sacrifices are made to the Lord. Remember, the setting here, Isaiah was seeing God's, temp God's temple and then the Lord's throne on top of God's temple, right? So what God used to deal with Isaiah's impurity is a holy and a pure object from a holy place. Are you following me? And this would be counterintuitive for the original audience of this text, right? Because if you touch something clean with something that's dirty, what would change? The clean thing, right? The, the clean thing gets polluted and then it becomes dirty. Or the other option is that God's holiness is so powerfully cleansing that the unclean would just be utterly destroyed. But neither happened here. Rather, this holy object, in fact, spread its holiness onto the impure object, making what was once unclean able to participate in holiness. That's why when Isaiah's lips touched the coal, the seraphim told Isaiah, his guilt is taken away and his sin is atoned for. Brothers and sisters, our Lord Jesus Christ is like that coal that touched Isaiah. Jesus Christ is the Holy One of God. He is the very embodiment of the holiness of God, the clearest manifestation of the character and power of the author and creator of life himself. And through him, we see that the Holy God desires not to destroy we unclean, sinful, impure humans, but to heal us, to cleanse us of our impurity, and in fact, making all of creation holy and filling it with his holy presence. And he did that by living the only holy and perfect life. And to take on all our impurity, all our sins, and defeating it on the cross. Taking away our guilt, atoning for our sins. Then the risen Jesus sends his Holy Spirit so that we can be reborn from the deadness of our sins and live this new holy lives in Him so that we no longer have to cower in fear and hide ourselves from God anymore, but we can come before His throne to participate in His holiness. Brothers and sisters, if you look at the miracles of Jesus, this is what God was trying to show. Jesus went around the poor, the sick, the outcast, the foreigner, the tax collector, people who are hated by society, considered sinful and ritually unclean, and what did he do? He healed them, called them to be his disciples, gave them dignity, and then died for them. This is what the holy God, who is motivated by his holy love, is committed to do. Transforming the once unworthy creation, the once unworthy sinners, into a new creation that is filled with his holiness. Brothers and sisters, as what happened with Isaiah in verse 8, after he had received the grace of this holy God, which made him holy, 
there is also a call from God to us, right? God did not only make us holy to cleanse us, but to call us to be his servants. As God declared to Isaiah, whom shall I send and whom will go before us? You see, friends, God intends to fill his creation with his holiness through us. He sent us his Holy Spirit so that the New Testament tells us that we are now God's temple. What Isaiah saw, the train of God's robe fell, right? In a real way, we are like the mobile carriers of God's holiness. And the Spirit will likewise work through our ministry such that we can share God's holiness to others and invite them to participate in this mission of God to restore creation to himself. We all can share in this holiness that God's kingdom might come on earth as it is in heaven. So Isaiah, realizing the magnitude of what just happened to him, he doesn't even wait for God to give him the job description. He just said, here I am. Send me. When we have truly been humbled by the holiness of God, then realize that instead of being destroyed, we are actually sanctified by it. Serving Him should feel less like an obligation or chore, but more like a privilege and honor. Our hearts would not grumble, but be humble at the thought that, wow, God would really trust someone like me to do it? So friends, will you answer God's call and go wherever He sends you? Will you accept what Jesus has done on your behalf and then go before Him? That is the call our Lord gives to all His children. But now I, I doubt that any of us has had an experience like Isaiah. But if you're discouraged and you're, you think that you'll never really be able to behold the holiness of God in its glory, rejoice. Because in Jesus, we have a clearer view of that holiness of God than any one-off vision can give us. Because from Revelation, we know that the one who is seated on the throne, the one about whom the angels are singing, holy, 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 is the Lamb who was slain. Jesus Christ is going to be the one to whom every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess is Lord. He is the one to whom the king shall cast out their crown. So if you want to gaze at the holiness of God, look at the Lamb who was slain for us. And if our eyes are opened by the Holy Spirit and we realize what God had done for us, we will truly realize how terrible our sin is. And like Isaiah, be moved to repentance. And if you confess with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart, that God raised him from the grave, the gospel has overflowed from your heart to your mouth, then you too has been touched by the cleansing holiness of God. And you too have been made worthy of his presence and to be called his servant. If I let, therefore, let us answer his call and draw near to the throne of grace with confidence that you may find grace and mercy in our time of need. Amen. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, King of kings, the very author of life, you are so glorious and majestic beyond our comprehension, Lord. And you have revealed yourself to us. And more than that, you have called us to be your children and to be in your service. Father, let us never take that for granted. And let us be aware both of the holiness that is your essence, Lord, and the holiness that you have called us to participate in as we repent for our sins and as we continuously uh, are corrected by you, Lord. Forgive us for our straying, for our fickle hearts. Allow us, Lord, to continually come back to you through your Holy Spirit's work in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.